You are now listening to the Claim It Podcast with me, your host, Trisha Huffman, your joyologist. On this podcast, I have conversations with people who intrigue and inspire me. I love getting into people's journey, not just talking about like the thing they're most passionate about or their most recent work. Because I think it's good for us all to hear, you know, that everything isn't just so easy peasy for everyone. And um, that once you reach your goals, oh, there are still struggles. So on today's episode, I am honored to get to talk to Adrian Michael. He is someone who I follow him on social media, on Instagram, and his words consistently like take my breath away. Like in the episode, <laughs> I was talking to him and I was trying to describe like what I thought of his writing and I literally was speechless. It was like, uh, I can't even like describe it. So um, if you're not following him yet, go check out Adrian Michael. He is self-published, I don't even know, 15, 17 books at this point. Um, and yeah, I really, really enjoyed talking to him. So let's, oh, wait, wait, oh, before I was about to say, let's get in. If you haven't yet, I would really be so honored if you hit subscribe and leave a review for the podcast. You can listen to the episode first if you have never heard one, especially. <laughs> I want you to leave an honest review. But remember to go, especially to Apple Podcasts, leave a review, and then you can screenshot your review and send it to me at podcast at yourdryologist.com, and I'll send you a little gift from my product line. Okay, here we go. Okay. so. I like to start with what was life like for you growing up? Where were you? And especially like high school ages where it can be where we either can have this like, this is what I want to do. Or we're feeling this pressure of like, I'm supposed to know what I want to do. <laughs> yeah. So I'm originally from Denver, Colorado, born and raised Denver native. And surprisingly, a lot of Denver natives are kind of on the wayside because a lot of people are moving to Colorado. And uh, surprisingly, it's rare to hear I'm a Denver native, even though currently I live in California. <laughs> so a lot of people uh, from California have moved to Colorado. But so from from Denver, and I think growing up, it felt, you know, big home, big family. When I say big home, not in terms of like square footage, but in terms of number of people, you know, lots of cousins, lots of siblings and we had a lot of love a lot of things that we needed that we didn't know that we needed you know if that makes sense and so when i was in high school we were in private school and so there was only a handful of black students and we had this crew coming up and so I'm, i have a, a twin brother and so it was a bunch of sets of twins who were going through the the gauntlet of private school and so to your question of, did I know what I wanted to do? No, had no idea. You know, for so long, I've always checked the boxes of what was I supposed to do. And, and from grade school, high school, college, beyond, it was always, I have to do this because I was told to do it. But I always had this creative, expressive, sensitive side where I needed to share what was on my heart and what was on my mind. And that sometimes felt like a little bit of a black sheep you know, um, and even though I, I felt that way, I still felt a sense of belonging with uh, the crew of brothers that we 
kind of ran with from high school into to college and we're still best of friends now, but I've always been a writer more specifically, kind of taking notes and getting whatever was on my mind down in some capacity, especially in, in middle school. There was a an English teacher who I think began my my journey to really just write down whatever I was feeling versus only write when someone tells you to write. Uh, I used to write these little love notes to an ex-girlfriend of mine. What's interesting, I have her her collection of notes to me, but I've always wondered, I wonder what I was writing. <laughs> and I wonder if she still has them. I probably She probably doesn't, but if she does, and I'm, you know, send it my way. Yeah, that is interesting. And so, yeah, this middle school teacher I mean, I guess, did she see that you must have writing town or like, or was she just telling the whole class like to write? Like, was she in sort of instructing people to journal or did she like tell you directly? Like, did she see like some emotionless? Like, can you remember? I'm guessing you probably don't really remember, but like what would have led her to even, you know, telling you that? No, I think, you know, just the the class environment, you know, it was an English class and we were just always writing. Um, and I had picked up this journal and was just writing poems. I mean, the the writing the poetry part of me came from when I was probably, you know, 10 or younger because my father had a cultural center in the hub of uh, Five Points in Denver. So tons of poets would come out on this Friday night, open mic nights. And you know, I'd be surrounded by just incredible voices, just sharing the pen, sharing what's true to them. And then I was able to bring that into my middle school experience um, from more of like an academic perspective. Um, but it's, I think it's, it's great when you have different people who can water you in different ways with different nuance and different languages that at some point you don't really know you're being watered until you look at your soil and go, oh yeah, I got that water from this person or from this experience. Um, but it, it took a village for sure to get me where I am in terms of my, my writing endeavors. Yeah, so true about that looking back and seeing where like and sometimes it can be like, oh, that water came from somebody that I really didn't like, you know, like and stuff like that too, looking back of like, oh, I can see how that actually did serve me somehow or support me. Uh, so when you also were saying like you felt like you didn't think about what you wanted, but what you were supposed to do. And was that from like family or teachers, whatever, telling you that? Or was that you making up? This is what I think I'm supposed to do to like fit in or be whatever or the next step. No, I think it was definitely passed down in terms of family. I mean, it was it was known your job, your expectation, your responsibility is to do well in school, to go to school uh, and, you know, listen to your teachers. And this is your opportunity to go and make a life for yourself. Um, I, I remember my stepmom years, I think it was in high school, it had been high school, um, where for her, it was less about the grade and it was more so, did you do your best? And I recall her literally as if I was in the living room still. Um, and she was like, hey, you got a, I think it was like a C or a D. I was, I, it was pretty bad. And she said, well, did you do your best? And I said, I did. So, well, that's all that matters. Um, but I think even culturally for African-Americans, education has always been a practice of freedom and expression of freedom. And I actually take that language specifically from a graduate class I took with Dr. Linda Mizell. Um, the class was called Education as a Practice of Freedom. Um, but it's always been tried and true of educating ourselves, you know, teaching ourselves how to read and to write given our um, textured history. But just kind of from generation to generation is this is what you got to do. No matter if you don't want to go to 
class, don't want to go to school, you got to because this is just you know, Sankofa, right? African tradition of going back and fetching it. It's your responsibility to be successful and not just go off and do your thing, but whatever you get, your, your responsibility to go back and help your community, help your people be successful. And then education was that vehicle to make it happen. You got a little emotional there when you're saying that because that's definitely not background I grew up with, you know, and uh, and I think that that must be true for not all, but a lot of families, you know, and that's interesting to like now to be so much more aware of like, it kind of sucks that, yeah, my, I didn't really have a culture and like my focus, we didn't have that sort of like, you know, to give back, like, <laughs> yeah go get educated and do this and like to give back and to think about your community like that wasn't how I was raised it was like you were keeping up and you have to like get these things so that you have them and then don't want to lose them like like fear-based of you need to have these things so that you can show people you have them I don't know yeah no I think to <laughs> even push back a little bit is go ahead um, and push back yes. I think people uh for the most part have this fear-based growing up this fear based you know hey if you don't do this then fill in the blank um and a lot of people will say well i don't have a culture that's you know that's not what we had but you had something right. there was something that was particular a uh, practice and a tradition and ritual in your household and you're growing up it just looked different it sounded different the pressure probably was a different language or tone or you know all those different things that if you were to tease it out you'd find it but culture really is not just something that, oh, I can point and look at it and touch it and see it. It really is, uh, what do we do? What did we do? That is kind of like a daily thing or a weekly thing or a monthly thing or a yearly thing that is specific to not just maybe as a collective people or family, but even as you as an individual, as a child, as someone trying to fit in or belong, what was that thing that was true for you? And no one else. I think that's how I define culture as what, like, what are those habits? What are those practices? Um, and so you probably for sure have them. Um, you're doing it right now. Thank you. And yeah, but it was more like the fact of like, I don't remember a focus on giving back or doing things with how it would impact other people. But I feel like growing up, it was the doing things and how it impact other people because how you want them to see you. So that was where I was starting to feel like, yeah, I don't think I was really taught to like, give back mm -hmm. yeah so I mean, I'm sort of like of... struggling with that emotionally and wincing and then being like was I I don't feel like it, it with me it was this fear-based of we have to do these things so people think that we're well off that people think we're successful but what this was all but we're not but we're not you know the like a mix of the fear of like we have to look this way but we're not like being told you're poor but then we have to buy the nice car like that sort of thing like we just have to like look like we have things Oh yeah, the keeping up with the Joneses, yeah. the individual versus the collective, all of That's that. That's what oh, I'm saying. So yeah. I'm sort of like I wasn't taught to like think of other people and how can I also help them. But that was probably due to how my parents were raised. Anyway, back to your life um, and the culture that yeah, what was happening at the time that they were growing up and raising families. Um, so what did happen when you get to high school? Were you then like for sure like I'm going to college? Like that's a what happens. Oh, yeah, it was. Um, and what's interesting is, and this is kind of the dynamic between, uh, from again, this is from my perspective, from the a public school track and then a private school, independent school track, where in my experience, going to private school, the question ever was, are you 
going to college. It was, which college are you going to? I mean, that's, that was the expectation of you're going here to go somewhere in higher education. That's what you're going to do. You know, our school is 99, 100% success rate of everyone going to to a college. I mean, that's a college prep experience where, you know, public school, it's it's different depending on which uh, public school you attended. But right off the bat, it was never, are you, but where are you going to? Um, And so, yeah, it opens up a lot of conversations. And even when I got to college, I never, and this is um, me speaking out loud and like, wow, I never was that person to try to chart my own path. It was, where am I expected to go? Okay, I'm going here, check the box. All right, I'm expected to go here, check the box. Versus the, hmm, where do I want to go? Do I want to go to college? Do I want to fill in the blank? Do I want to work here? Do I want to grow here? Where do I want to live? It was more so, hey, you're doing this and don't question it because you don't have space to question it. And that was always a, hmm, all right. But I never had the language or the time or the permission to say, hold on, I know you're expecting this of me, but what do I expect of myself? And it was helpful, you know, when you're growing up and you listen to your parents and your grandparents and your family and everyone is saying, hey, to be successful, you got to do this. And I think it took me until about literally the age of 30 to go, hmm, who am I? Like truly, who am I? There was this identity crisis that many people go through that I hit as a shell shock of what does it mean to be a man? What does it mean to be a father? What does it mean to be a husband? And I didn't have that capacity or, I mean, I probably did, but I wasn't focused on it at an adolescent age at all. I wish I could go back and go, Hmm, let's take some time. (laughs) Let's write this down of, all right, in 10 years, where do you see yourself? Um, But it's part of life. That's how you grow and how you learn. Yeah. I mean, and some people have those awakenings early on like I had one very young on like at 15 yours was at 30 some people don't have them till they're 65 like (laughs) you know like some people are still caught up in the they don't realize that they've never asked themselves do I like this do I want this um but yeah so how did you get to 30 so you go to college what were you studying just what you were told like, you know, like, oh, was it like, I have these options. Was it doctor this or what, you know, like, what were your, what'd you go to school for? And what did you then do out of school? So again, I never knew what I wanted to do. I did know I wanted to give back. I did know that I wanted to provide um, a space of, of giving, but there wasn't a, when I grew up, I want to do this. If I did, it was kind of like, um, it wasn't really well thought out. I knew in college, I wanted to figure that out. And um, I always go back to this story. My father was like, all right, um, don't go to college to get a, a business degree and don't go to college to um, get a degree in like black studies or African studies because no one should be telling you who you are. And I was like, I'm going to go to school to learn about business. So I applied to the business school, not because I was against what he was saying, but I was like, I think it's transferable. Everything kind yeah. of touches money. And if you can go to business school and do well, I think you can do well in any space because I didn't want to just jump into arts and sciences and just kind of be more specialized. I was like, I think business feels kind of like a, a good move only because I did a pre-college program um, in the summer 
I think my sophomore junior year and I was in this business leadership program that I was like, wow, if I come to Boulder, see you Boulder, I think I'll have a, a place where people really care and love on me. So I think I didn't really choose a major. It was more of like I chose a neighborhood. I chose a sense of belonging. And I said, all right, this person, Oswald Allen is going to allow me to develop and grow through, through his mentorship and guidance. And so once I decided to do business school, uh, some of my actually favorite classes were Black Studies. Uh, Dr. Raylan Rabaka was one of my hands-down favorite professors. I did, I think I did a, a Black Studies class, a hip-hop studies class, and um, those classes are always packed. And it was not even about my major, it was more about the learning, right? And so even as I was going through my career, in the back of my mind, I was like, I really don't want to do business, but I don't want to waste these credits. I don't want to have to go back and spend more money and all these different things. And so I kept pushing through. And so I was surrounded by people who wanted to be in these Fortune 500 companies. And I want to be a CPA and I want to go into finance and I want to do all these different things. And I'm going to do this internship. And I'm like, I'm good. I'm just, <laughs> you know, mosing around, not really trying to, I guess, spend the time to figure out what I want. I was just, I think I was just more so in the moment. All right. I'm in college who am I as a college student, kind of just meandering around. And then when it came to uh, my senior year, I had no idea what I wanted to do after graduation. Because at that question, after, you know, when you're a senior, they're like, all right, where are you working? Who are you working for? What are you going to do after you graduate? And I kept saying, I don't, I don't know. I don't, I really didn't know. I don't know. And I kept getting these messages from Teach for America of like, hey, you've been identified as a leader on campus. You should check us out. And because I knew about the history uh, and like the branding, all this about Teach for America, I was like, mm, delete. I, sp I sent a lot of emails to the trash. But then just for some reason, like all these signs kept coming, like Teach for America, Teach for America. And I was all right, I'm gonna give it a chance. I'm going to kind of respond and uh, end up meeting up with this guy who told me about his, you know, his experience in, I believe it was the Mississippi Delta of how he didn't want to be a teacher, but felt like he was making a difference with those students through music. And I said, well, remember I told you about Sankofa and giving back. I said, like, yeah, I do want to give back. And education has always been my privilege and part of my purpose. And so let me just kind of throw my hat in the ring. I don't want to be a teacher but I know my privilege is in education. So I applied and that's a whole different story, but I ended up getting into uh, the, uh, the, the charter core in Tulsa, Oklahoma. I had no idea what a Tulsa was, to be honest with you. What a Tulsa. <laughs> what a Tulsa, yeah. <laughs> they were like, hey, you get in and um, you're going to go to teach in Tulsa. We, we weren't even on the map at that point. It was a charter core. What, so what is Teach for America? I don't, I, it sounds familiar to me, but I don't actually know. It's different than just you're going to be a teacher. because it It's a, like an AmeriCorps program where um, I think their, their, their business model may have changed. But back in 2009, uh, President Barack Obama was like, hey, uh, 25,000 people have applied for Teach for America. The most applications are, have ever been. And I was part of that um, charter core in Tulsa. But it's basically they were they would take um, recently college graduates or even graduate students um, and do like a teacher training for uh, like a month or so and then throw them into uh, a low performing school. Um, and you would teach whatever, you know, subject that they kind of uh, opted you in. Like you could choose to, hey, I want to be a, 
a science teacher. I want to be a math teacher. I want to teach whatever grade. And then they would, depending on the need, they would place you in a school. And I wanted to teach seventh grade social studies in Washington, DC. I was like, that's where I want to go. That's where I want to be. And they were like, nah, you're going to teach second grade, everything in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Remember I told you what, what's a Tulsa. I, I told my director, Aswa, and I was like, I think they want me to go to Oklahoma. He said, you should probably do some research. And guess what I didn't do? Zero research. <laughs> Had no idea. I've never been to Oklahoma. And so basically, in a nutshell, Teach for America uh, believes every child deserves an excellent education. And I highly believed in that. I still believe every child deserves an incredible, excellent education. And so because I wanted to get back and I wasn't applying to other internships or um, applying for any jobs, I kind of threw my hat in. And when I found out that uh, I was selected to be in the Charter Corps, I was like, sure, I'll do it. And the starting salary was $33,000. And I was like, that's more than I'm making now. Uh, I'm making like, you know, not that at all. Um, And so I became uh, a teacher and I had no idea what it meant to be a teacher. I just wanted to try that out. And um, fast forward 10 plus years, I've been in education since. Oh, wow. So when you sign on for Teach for America, though, is it usually just like a one-year contract because they're like trying to like, okay, let's take advantage of these college kids, not take advantage, like to get something from you, but like, oh, they graduated and don't have jobs yet. So we're going to take these people that graduated and put them in an underperforming school. So that's also the idea that where those schools are, they might not have the best pool of teachers or they need more teachers and they're not fine. I would say they, they need more teachers. I think there are a lot of incredible teachers. Um, it's a, I don't know what it is. Again, this is 10 plus years ago, but back then it was a two year commitment that okay. if you were selected, you would be in the classroom for two years. However, I didn't do the full two years. There was some personal life stuff that happened. And after a year, I, um, decided to go back home uh, to Colorado to support my family, but it is a two year contract. Um, and, What's interesting is you go in and there's, I believe there's this expectation that you're going to change the entire school because you're with Teach for America and you have this incredible training and yada, yada. And probably by now, I think that's true. But back then I was like a fish out of water. I had no idea what it meant to be a teacher. You know, they were throwing things at me like, here's how you backwards plan. And here's the five, I think it was like a five lesson, five step lesson plan. And what are your key points and main ideas? And here's how to do classroom management and big goals. And I'm like, I'm I'm literally, I can say it now and it makes sense, but imagine 21 year old me uh, dealing with, you know, life stuff, also trying to be uh, a teacher that, you know, I didn't go to college for that. I went to to school for, for business. And so, you know, even though I was thrown through this gauntlet, I learned so much. I had some incredible mentors, uh, some incredible students who are still part of my story today. Whenever I do trainings or any, any opportunity to to talk, I, I bring them up because they mean so much. They're part of my my why. And so everything that we do, even though it could feel like a bump or a um, uh, some kind of uh, storm, there's always a lesson. And the lesson that I took away was, hey, you you have some stories. You have some stories and you were able to give back, even though you maybe it felt like you weren't making a difference. I believe that I was, um, even though when I was in it, oof, man, if we talked about what does success mean, I thought I was not being successful. 
at all. Because it was really hard. I mean, this is real life, real students, real parents, real neighborhoods who, you know, they're struggling, just like I'm struggling. Um, and so it was like my responsibility to, you know, figure it out. And one of the all-time favorite quotes that st- sticks to me to this day comes comes from uh, Pastor Ray Owens out of Tulsa, Oklahoma, who I believe was maybe the first or second year Teach for America even came into existence. And he was teaching in, I believe, LA. And he said, you know, his classroom, he had no idea what to do. I mean, there was nothing that he knew uh, in terms of how to kind of uh, navigate what was happening. And he said, you know what, it's my responsibility to make this work. How can I not afford not to make this work? Like, I'm going to make it work no matter work, no matter what. And so I took that lesson with him when when Ray spoke to us as a, as a charter core. You know, you, you just, you're going you're gonna to make it happen. You're going to make it happen. And so I, I appreciate those wise words from from him. Yeah, I have so much respect for teachers. It's something I have never wanted to do. And it's, now, it's hard. It is so hard, but quite rewarding. But, but the reward I, never comes sometimes. And that's okay. Yeah, I mean, I think when I was like young and like, you know, just getting out of college and stuff too. Well, I also, my dream was to become a live sound engineer. And I did that. Like, and I went to school, like even like I did that. So like my journey was much different than most people's. Like it's an odd job. And I was like, I know what I'm doing and I will make it happen. But when people that I went to high school with were like, I'm going to be a teacher, like no part of me understood that. Like you're going to be a teacher. And now I'm like also then imagining them like being 22 or whatever and going back to work at the same schools that that like they did. And they're like a 22 year old that doesn't know what they're doing. Like then, like being in charge of like especially like yeah like teenagers or just any kids. I am, yeah. Especially now, my 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 oldest kid is five and like just entered the school system, and I'm just like, thank you, teachers. Like, where do these people come from? Thank you. Like, I cannot imagine. Oh yeah, <laughs> teachers are for sure our unsung heroes. They're deeply underpaid, and they deserve all the millions because you know, imagine being in the same classroom with a student eight to 10 hours. I mean, they're, that's, I mean, that's like a family that is literally, they're raising our children. Totally. Uh, and so even though I've, I know, I know, even though people who, even you were saying like, I had like, who would want to, like, how could you do it? It's just, they're magic. Okay. So, but so you ended up, so you took that job for Teach for America. You said you ended up coming back because family issues, but then did you remain a teacher for 10 years? Is that what you were is that what happened? So I stayed in education. Um, okay. So when I came back from Oklahoma, I went back to the college where I got my undergraduate degree and started working in the program that I remember I told you that uh, I actually applied for the business school because of this program, the Diverse Scholars Program. And for about four years, I worked in the Office of Diversity Affairs, working with student development in leadership with incredible first year through, we'll, we'll say like super seniors, five, six, seven year students. It took them a while to, to do their thing, but just rubbing shoulders with some incredible people who were trying to figure out who they were, what they wanted to do when they grew up. And the majority of them were like, this is the class I'm taking because I want to go here and here and here. There's one student who made a plan that every year she wanted to study abroad and she did every single year. She was literally never on campus. And I go, wow, I wish I studied abroad when I was in college. Why didn't I do it? Because there was this fear of one is too expensive. Uh, I have no idea where I'm going to get the money from, but then finding out you actually can make it work. But I just didn't take that chance to follow through and ask the questions. 
Um, so, you know, when I came back from Oklahoma, I got a chance to still be in education. And when I did four years at CU Boulder, then I finished that and went to um, become actually a seventh grade teacher and a director of inclusivity at a private school called Colorado Academy, where I went to high school. So there's this oh, pattern wow. of going back to where I came. So I was at CU Boulder as a student, and then I worked at CU Boulder for four years. Then I went back to my high school and did uh, four years there teaching. Actually, remember I told you I, I, I wanted to be a seventh grade teacher teaching social studies, and they gave me second grade everything. But then lo and behold, years later, I do become a seventh grade teacher. Um, it's just, it's wild how the universe works. It's like you're planting all these seeds and the universe is like, are you, are you sure you want this? Are you sure you want it? All right. And then boom, before you know it, um, years down the line, it's like, you got to say yes, or you got to say no. Um, so I've always been in and around education, either as a formal classroom teacher or within the system that's working with young people who are in, you know, taking classes. And you mentioned you also went back to your school and had the title of director of inclusivity. Why do I feel like I was saying that? Word yeah, it's a long director of inclusivity. <laughs> See, for some reason, inclusivity sounds easier. I'm like, when it came out of my mouth, I'm like, what am I saying? Was that a position that already existed? And what was that? Because when you went there, right, you were saying that there was only a handful. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, it was uh, never, it was a brand new position. Um, I think in, in spirit, it existed when we were a student. Um, her name was Darnell Sims. And actually, she went by Darnell Slaughter. Um, and she was like our, is it called a hen mother? I don't even know. That's the first time I ever used that word, but this what popped up in my head. But she took care of us. She was the one where we needed, you know, more financial aid, money for books, food, um, support, you know, camaraderie. She even uh, created this, I think it was called, um, oh man, I haven't thought about this in a long time, but it was like a summer bridge program. And she brought all the students of color together, whether they were in middle school or in high school, um, a few weeks before school started as kind of like a summer boost. I think it was called summer boost. And, you know, it's like this sense of belongings. Like, hey, even though you might be few in number, you're strong in support. And she fostered that um, beautiful racial identity that we already had from our household, but she made sure that we carried it through um, at the school, right? And so had that at CA. And then professionally, even though it didn't exist when I was a student and they kind of created this position in 2000 and. 13, 14, um, I was able to take all those learnings from what I've carried with me from people such as Darnell Slaughter um, and many other people to make sure that, you know, you just can't say this space is for students of color and then you bring them in and then they fall through the cracks because you don't have those support mechanisms in place. And so my responsibility was to make sure everyone, you know, um, was, they felt like a sense of belonging. They could be who they are and be successful. But for me, um, I wanted to give love and care for our students of color who, you know, I'd, I'd be at admission fairs and um, parents of color would come up to me like, yo, um, yeah, that school is, is pretty white. Um, you know, why should I send my student, you know, there? And I would tell them candidly, hey, if you don't bring your, your child, if you don't, um, you know, at least apply or enroll, then the school will always be predominantly white and not. Um, having the students of color that we so want. And a step that we have and we were doing is that's why I'm here. 
you know, when they come, I'm going to make sure that your kiddo is good because I'm, you know, I've been there and we're going to, we're going to make it work. And so, you know, um, beyond, beyond that, I think growing that diversity program was um, a labor of love, let's say, you know, anything that you're trying to do where some people are like, wait, what do you do? What's inclusive? <laughs> and that's okay. You know, I think I welcome that. I mean, there were some hard times, even to this day, you know, um, being in the, the world of diversity, equity, and inclusion. There's a lot of pushback and misunderstanding and wanting to say, well, you know, every student, you know, deserves to belong. Like, why do you need to just talk about students of color? Why are we talking about race? Or why are we talking about um, sexual orientation? Or why are we talking about gender? Like, can't we all, you know, what is that, the Rodney King, can't we all just get along? It's like, we can, but we can't if there's all this stuff, all these barriers in the way that's not allowing people to be their full self. Uh, and so part of what I was doing, but I, part of what I still do is, you know, create space for people to have these types of conversation to say, are you being a bridge or are you a barrier? And what I'm finding is there are a lot of people who will say, I'm, I am a bridge and you're a barrier. And those very people that you're talking about are saying, wait, wait, I'm a bridge. You're the barrier. And there's like this impasse. There's no hearing of one another. And so it's really important when you do hear the words diversity or equity, inclusivity, belonging, all these different things, you know, what is your reaction? Is it like, oh no, that's uncomfortable. Or is it like, huh, tell me more. I'm open to that. What's, 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 what's under that? What's all that about? And why is it that I have this response of like, this is uncomfortable. In naming that, I think it's really important, but you got to create space for it for, for everyone. Um, and not just because you want students of color or students of marginalized backgrounds or, or different identities. It's because you're creating opportunities for people who are in that current space to learn about themselves and how they treat other people. And then if certain people who currently aren't there, you are ready for them versus the, oh, snap you know, we have X and X kind of student. We need to, you know, retroactively make sure that they feel like they belong. But what does it feel like and sound like when you're already ready? You're already doing the work. And when they come knocking, you're like, oh, there you are. We've been waiting. Come on, come on in. Thank you. You know, um, and it, it takes everyone. Everyone has blind spots. Nobody's perfect. I'm, I have a lot of blind spots. You know, I'm not perfect, um, but I'm willing and I think many people are willing to examine them. That's the most important thing. Yeah. I mean, I was in, yeah, I remembered you saying that you were one of few black people at the school. So that's why I was like, oh, and then they had position. But I also, I went to private Catholic schools my whole life and uh, in both elementary and high school. Yeah. There was like two or three black people. And I don't even think there was, at, honestly, I think everybody else was white, not other ethnicity it was you everyone was white and there were like three black people and yeah i was thinking and and and, and on staff only white people and so yeah i was thinking like you know of course i always recognized oh well you know how does aft i wonder how afton feels as being like the black person in a white school but i'd never asked that because back then like you know that would be like insensitive but yeah the fact of of course like her parents were telling probably you know telling her hey you belong but then yeah if you don't have anybody within the school and kids especially I think you know could be trying their best but maybe insensitive especially once you get to high school of like yeah I didn't think about like right somebody inside to just be like checking on hi how are you remember to be your full self or to whatever it could be so um yeah I don't know <laughs> like good for you for 
going back and creating that position and hopefully people around the country in schools or this is something that's normal. Like I want to call, I want to go back to my school. Like, do you guys have anybody doing this position now? Cause I'm sure it's still the same. Yeah, no, you should. I encourage every listener to say, just check in with your local school and say, Hey, do you have an office where students of color or underrepresented populations can go and feel like they can get the support that they need? Um, even when we talk to folks, you know, we have a, a three-year-old and education is important, even though he's just three, um, people who were in, you know, in charge of his rearing that when we're not with him, you know, we, I always, my, my measure of their understanding of just the work, even if it's not perfect, again, I'm not trying to say I want my student or my, my son to be, you know, with the woke people. Um, but I throw the question like, Hey, you know, um, what, what is your policy or your practice around diversity, equity, inclusion, or anti-bias curriculum or any of those different things? Um, and all it takes is like 10 seconds to know whether they know about it or they don't know about it. And there's no judgment there. It's just like, huh, interesting. Um, you know, and it's, I, I, not that I try to make people uncomfortable, but it's, you know, it's, it's really important that if you can't answer the question, why can't you answer the question? And there's no judgment there. It's just a wonder like, huh, but are you willing to? And if you're willing to, then we can work with you. But if you're not willing to, then we got to go somewhere else, you know? Right. Like I'm get, like if they had even said like sort of been like paused and been like, oh, that's a great question. I haven't thought of that. Would that probably even be like a better question of like or, you know, would that be a turn off or like, oh, they are interested in, you know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, I think it depends where they go next. It's like, oh, um, currently we don't. However, we will do blah, blah, blah versus the scrambling and when people scramble it's like uh what we have uh you know they try to like pull stuff out of air um and that's when it's um you know an interesting situation where you know i'm not asking you to make something up i just really want to know as simple as you know what kind of what's what kind of books are in your curriculum um what kind of crafts do the students get a chance to do when they're in the classroom it's kind of like every parent should ask that question even if you're white you know, everyone's like, hey, uh, in terms of your curriculum, you know, how many um, books of children of color are, you know, on your bookshelves? And, you know, that's just it's yeah, it's it's important. I think it is. Even if you yourself are you're learning, you can say, hey, I'm willing to even though like currently you don't have it. I'm more than willing to help create it with you. Um, yeah, it's all good yeah. stuff. Yeah. No, I think it is because that's what I'm saying. You can't like as no as a white person too, like, yeah. And the same thing, like, oh yes, I am working on getting more books of featuring different colors on my bookshelf or too. And then bringing that to the school, like, Hey, what are you guys doing? What are you doing here at the school? Because I've been trying to implement, you know, like I've been more aware of this lately. What are you doing? How are you talking about this? So like even those sorts of conversations, right? So it's not like, what are you doing? I know more than you, but just, Hey, yeah, out of out of a space of curiosity, you know, looking at your your holidays, I'm noticing uh, that you don't have this mm-hmm. holiday, or have you had have you considered um, having this day, or changing this language around here, or how inclusive do we think we're being with our the the calendar that we're putting out? You know, um, I always say, you know, who uh, I have a, a poem called Equity is a love language and as well as like allyship is a love language and where we're trying to think about um, who's 
missing? Who's not at the table um, versus can we pinpoint certain people who aren't missing and make them show up and do the work for us? It's more like, hey, can we get curious about how we currently operate and then figure out what we need to do versus saying, all right, we need a black person to come and do this like 90 minute training so that we can say we did this anti-racist, anti-bias um, diversity training. And so people ask me, say, hey, look, on February 1st, because it happens to be Black History Month, we brought such and such and we learned and then we can move on from there. I mean, that's, mm, no, you got to just do a little bit more, um, not because it's reactionary, but being proactive. I think that's really important too. Trisha here bringing you a brief interruption. I'm so excited because I just uploaded a bunch of new powerful thoughts and affirmations to my daily inspiration app. The app is called Own Your Awesome. It's only $3.99 in the Apple um, App Store or the Google Play App Store. That's a one-time purchase. There's no ads. There's no subscription. It's just $3.99 full stop. And I regularly update it. So there's hundreds of powerful affirmations and thoughts. You can come to the app at any time. And it's sort of like picking, a, you know, it's a virtual card deck. Oh, I just got bitching about your circumstances doesn't make them better. Choose your circumstances or change them. It's your life. It is your choice. Well, that one's a little direct, Trisha. <laughs> I got another one. I just hit show me a card and I got, I am no longer holding myself back with worries, doubts, and fears. I am getting out of my own way. And then I hit show me a card again. And I got, I am what I create myself to be. My past does not define me. So all sorts of thoughts, affirmations. People do tell me that it tends to give them exactly what they need. You can swipe through and hit show me a card a bunch of times so you get one that you, that you really are feeling in that moment. You can heart it and it adds it to your favorites. You can easily hit share. There's even a journal section in there. And you can set a daily reminder. You go to daily in the app and set a time that every day you'll get a notification to go pull the card because we forget to do these things that we love that make us feel better, right? So you can hit that, but you can still come to it at any time. Go get it. It's called Own Your Awesome. You can also gift it. Yes. Okay, let's get back to your life. You are now back at teaching at your school. <laughs> you said that was like four years, maybe. Or no. What happens What happens at 30? Because you mentioned earlier, yeah, like you're like, oh, at, for the first time at 30, sort of ask myself, like, what do I want? Is there something between here to there to get to? Or do we just go to 30? Yeah, no, it was you know, all right, we're working, we're professional. You have, I think I was engaged You're at the time. You're doing work that matters. Yeah, doing work that mattered. Um, just kind of like going through the motions. This is, this is cool. All right. And then there was a part in my life where it was, okay, you're about to have a son. And, you know, that was like a, kind of like a whirlwind of, whew, this is, you know, how, what kind of father are you going to be? What kind of husband are you being? Um, you know, you're, you're working, but you're kind of stressed out and you just don't know what's on the other side. You don't want to, you know, um, spread that stress, you know, it's kind of like a, um, a gut check. And because I had never taken the time, it was like all these things at once and it felt like so much. And so 
within all of that, there was this wondering of, okay, what are you going to do differently? Because you can't keep digging your hill in the ground. Something has to happen. And so I think from there, I believe I was recruited to uh, leave my position in Colorado to move out to California to work for a purpose and belonging curriculum company. Back then, actually, it was just purpose, but now we, they had added on a belonging component called Project Wayfinder. And through even kind of a short time that I was with them, uh, Wayfinder is all about equipping young people to lead lives of meaning and purpose. And so they were using the language purpose. Um, but my coming up, the language that we were using was Sankofa, you know, responsibility. And so I was like, this seems kind of up my alley. It's still working with young people. Um, but I was so stuck in in Colorado. I think I was like, I'm going to see my life be here. All my family's here. All my friends are here. I'm kind of just here. And my wife was the one who was always, hey, I want to move out of the country. Hey, I want to move. I'm like, no. I'm good. She kept saying, but I want to move. Let's do it. Uh, and so when this opportunity came, which was unexpected, um, long story short, you know, quit the job, sold the house, moved across the country to to take a chance on something that we were was being built, you know, as a startup company. And um, that's where the, still this whirlwind of like, whoa, what are we doing? What's important to you? And so uh, Wayfinder was asking these big questions, you know, what brings you joy? Who are you? What are your values? And interestingly enough, you know, as I'm training teachers and bumping shoulders with college students, being able to teach a class at Cal Berkeley, you know, they were getting this opportunity to do it actively, you know, figuring out who they are, what they wanted to see have happen, all these different things. And I was kind of like the third person, you know, that third party kind of guiding them. And I never kind of intentionally had, I mean, I can probably go back and see all the different breadcrumbs, but there wasn't a curriculum. There wasn't a toolkit that said, yo, young Adrian Michael, here are all the questions. And then at some point uh, you can find your way, you know, it was more like just do, 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 just doing what a little kid would do is just doing their thing without knowing that everything mattered. And so through Wayfinder and the different tools, um, you know, fast forward a couple of years working with them, uh, I was at a point where I needed to decide, all right, seriously, take a pause, take a breath. What makes you happy? What brings you joy? What do you want your life to look like? Like right now you're, you know, you're educating, you're having this opportunity to raise your child and have a family in the Bay Area. Um, does there, is there anything else, you know, where do you see yourself in five, 10 years or so? And I never really had uh, created space for that. And so when COVID hit, for a lot of people, so much happened. And for me, I was doing, you know, back-to-back -back Zoom trainings. Imagine doing like six hours in a day on a screen, you know, with them to make like an hour, maybe an hour and a half break in between of just, you know, teaching and training on purpose and belonging, purpose and belonging. And so it came to a point where as I was doing that, I was also, you know, writing books. I have, I have been a self-published author since 2012. And so while I was always employed with someone else on the side, which I don't even, you know, I don't, I don't like to say side, but like my full hustle was also creating and writing books. And so uh, when COVID, I think um, I was at maybe books, 
10 or 11 around that time. And so during COVID, I published three or four volumes kind of from my experience trying to say, all right, what do I need? What, I, what do I think other people need? This is like a lot of us uh, experiencing the same thing all at once. And so as I was doing these trainings in between lunch hours, I was like going to the post office and, you know, um, getting postage and shipping and doing all these different things. It was a lot. And so um, at some point I was like, this is kind of stressful. I don't think I can do both of these simultaneously. Um, Knowing full well that my dream was to be a full-time writer. I've always admired people who could just say, I'm a writer, period. Like, oh, my favorite um, author is Ralph Ellison. And so he wrote the book called um, uh, Invisible Man. And so, you know, I'm like, what it would be like just to write one thing and then be good. Um, and even with ta Coates, who wrote Between the World and Me and Water Dance and all these different books, I'm like, man, that'd be so dope to just write. Uh, and I kind of came to a head where I said, okay, something has to happen. And if I don't leave now and pursue what I feel like is my passion, my purpose, then I would regret it. And I think that was kind of the marker for me is I, I can't do something that won't serve me um, because at the end of the day, if I'm telling you to, you know, ask you what your purpose is. Yeah. yeah you're all day things. long. Like your work is and like, you're not just like, yeah, you're leading training. Like you're leading trainings on purpose and passion. <laughs> exactly. All different things. I'm like, you know what? All right. I'm going to do it. Uh, and I took the the plunge, the leap. Uh, and, you know, it's been, what is it? What are we in? We're in March now. It's been three months and it's been good. You know, it's the best decision because I get to do what I want to do. Uh, and not that what I was doing before was bad. I've always enjoyed teaching and educating and training all of those. Um, but it feels different when I get to say I'm doing what I want to do. Yeah. Wow. So three, so it's been three months since of just. feels like in COVID speak, it's probably like 30 years. <laughs> right. <laughs> Three decades. And what, okay, I was, so many things going. So first, the company that you were working for, Wayfarer? Wayfinder, Wayfarer. I think a lot of people, uh, I always think we sell furniture, probably. (laughs) Or I was thinking like, like, what is, is there like a type of glasses that's like a Wayfarer or something? I don't know. Anyway. (laughs) Um, Okay, so you, like when you first, pre-COVID and you're working for them, is that, were you teaching kids or were you teaching teachers? Like, was that like, was there a curriculum to teach teachers? Like who were you teaching in that work? Yeah. So um, it was a a toolkit that we would train teachers on how to do it with their students. Got it. So it was like a train the trainer model. It wasn't like a, um, what was the language we used to use? It's not like um, on-demand or in-person training. Not, it's not It wasn't direct training. We weren't going straight to students. It was more of like, we can train one teacher who could probably reach 200 students versus us kind of going straight to the, the students. Um, and so I missed that ability to be directly in front of students. So I always appreciate it when I got the chance to train and work with students, uh, young people. Um, and so when I got to do it at Cal Berkeley or college prep in Oakland, California, it was so cool to get that energy. And, um, because, you know, students, this is different 
type of lifeblood, you know, they'll give it to you straight where kind of teachers have a little bit more of a resistance. You know, they're kind of like the stopgap of, I don't think my students are ready to talk about this. Or, you know, um, they're kind of in the nuance of education where students are like, yo, I just want to be happy. Or I just want to figure out who I am. Or I want to talk about the hard stuff. And um, not that both are right or wrong. They're just different. Uh, And so I was preferred working with young people. Got it. And so, yeah. So then when COVID hits, you're still doing the Still doing it. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then, yeah, you mentioned, yeah, you have, is it 17 books out now? Uh, 15 going on 17, 20, we'll 25, say. 30, 35, 40. Got a lot. <laughs> <laughs> but so, yeah, you had self-published for the first time in 2012, as I always said. Like, what led you in, and yeah, going back to, like, yeah, elementary school or whatever, you're r- always writing and wanting to be a writer had you this whole time, like while you're doing other jobs and teachings, like kept some sort of journal or done poetry or done some sort of writing or, or that whole time or like, and what led you to like first publishing? Oh yeah. I did, um, I think it was a piece in shout out Colorado voyage Denver, um, where I talked about actually my first quote unquote published piece, I believe was in 94 or 95 with a company called I can do it publishing. Uh, and I wrote a, uh, probably 10 line story about super muscle man uh, and apparently super muscle man uh took down some robbers who broke into a house and got an award for doing that and then had super muscle children and a super muscle wife begin um pretty proud of that story if, if are there any publishers out there who want to um <laughs> i don't know i'm just I don't, kidding i don't know you never know um, but uh, it, could, it could be a Pixar movie. Um, but I think, you know, that was 94, 95. So it was probably seven or eight ish. Um, but about, and I think this is true for, for most writers. Um, for me, it certainly is, but I found myself always writing when I was sad or just in my feelings and not having, um, an other outlet. I've always turned inward and especially when I was in Tulsa, Oklahoma, I was so stressed. I mean, I wasn't sleeping at all. And I remember I would call my mom every night and she'd say, all right, you know, take a bath, um, drink your sleepy time tea uh, and, and write, you know, I'd be like, okay, I'm gonna do that. And I don't think sleepy time, I mean, I don't think that ever worked for me. Um, it's those, yeah, those sleep teas don't really work for me, <laughs> but it's a real cute name. Yeah, but the the writing always did. I was able to sit down and say, okay, let me take everything that's in my head and put it on paper. And I would spend, man, hours probably just writing. I would wake up and I would timestamp everything. And I I would write in this red fire engine journal that I still have to this day and just write down everything. And um, I'm embarrassed to say, I, I wish I still wrote that way. You know, I mean, I just poured so much, so much just raw, um, real kind of um, breakdown of what the day was, who said what, all these different things. I think I had was unfiltered Um, and kind of through that writing, that's where Loam Expressions, my first book came from, from that journal and also blog posts. Um, I told you I self-published in 2012. So basically from 2009 to 2012, I was keeping this journal and blog posts and just writing what was really on my heart. And then I wanted to uh, literally and figuratively kind of let go of the past. And so that project Loam Expressions was really about me wanting to, you know, one, 
Um, I had this, had this goal of it, but before I turn 25, I want to self-publish a book, which I thought was pretty hard to do, but I also wanted to leave the past in the past. And so one, I, uh, I'd wanted to literally leave the past. So I jumped out of an airplane, believe it or not. There's a poem in that first book called Skydiver where I'm, you know, I'm like, all right, if you want to leave the past, just jump out of a plane. And so I did that, but also, um, put out into a book. And um, that's how that first book came about. But that really was um, a a true, like personal testament of just, man, life was challenging. It really was. Um, And most people, I I probably should deactivate that book um, because (laughs) I don't know if it's any good, but it definitely has some, some things in there that I needed to get off my chest. And was that written in the like style, you know, is that, like long chapters or is it like, you know, sort of more like sort of short writing or short stories? Like what was the format of that first book? And like, is it similar to still what you're doing now or is it? I'd say it's a little bit of both. There are some long pieces, some really short pieces. Um, and, you know, just like when you're a kiddo, just trying to just do what feels good for you. There's, you know, there's less pressure from around. Uh, and so I think when I put that out there, I didn't really care uh, what it looked like. I mean, man yeah again i should probably throw it away but um there's some truth and some beauty in that it's very different from what i write now um i think i keep a lot of things closer to the the heart than i did back then um and i think that's you know the the brain you know uh stopping its its formation at 25 ish for for me but um yeah if you would ask me today if i would jump out of a plane probably not but 25 year old me Yes. And so the book, I think that's a representation of that, even though uh, what I currently write is is true to me and uh, represents how I'm feeling. Um, it's less direct. You know, I want I want people to see themselves in the words. Um, and so Loam Expressions for me was just a, a personal project to unveil what was, you know, happening in my life. Um, yeah. And did you even have any like goals for it? It was just I am going to publish a book by 25 done. You know what I mean? Like, did you have any sort of attachments to it or just like, I did it? No, I mean, that, that unlocked where I am today. I think, um, anyone who either is self-published or even just gets published, there's a part of you, at least this was true for me, that it's like, what's the next one? Cause that was cool. That was like a cleansing. Um, but for me, it's like the process of creating the process of kind of speaking to what fills my soul. Um, in one of the books, I believe when I, I think I, I talk about like the art of self-publishing on the back of it, I says, you know, I've, I've, uh, I've been a writer ever since I thought I was like, I've always been a writer. I've always had something to say. And so from book one to book 15 or so, I think that's just my calling is just to put it out there, um, you know, let people be the judge of it. But I think my, my best writing was my, my first book. And then somewhere in between, I think there's some good gems. I think I've gotten, uh, my voice has for sure shifted and changed uh, as life happens. But um, it, it went from, yeah, I want to, you know, I want to publish a book before I turn 25 to, I want to keep doing it because it feels, you know, if it's filling something, it really is. Um, and it feels good. How do you know when a book is done? If you, when you self-publish and especially in the like writing that it seems you do now, where it could be like, yeah, I mean, I don't know. Is there another one it can add to this? Right. Like, yeah. How do you know 
do you start with like an idea? I'm guessing they're all somewhat different maybe too though, but like, yeah. How do you know when you're like, this one's done, you just get a feeling or do you have to like tell yourself like, stop? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it depends on the project. I mean, in my office, there are these, all these post-it notes and there are book projects that, you know, were in my brain five, 10 years ago, maybe that haven't even been watered. Like I might write a few things and then something shifts, but to your question, I think a book is never done because you're wanting to either add to it, remove from it, change something. Um, They're all works in progress. I think they're all working documents. You know, some people will put it out and be done. There's sometimes, you know, you'll put a book out and go, I kind of want to edit that and change something and remove something or um, take it down entirely. It's like, okay, this served a purpose. I no longer want it out there for people to, to grab. Um, But a book to me, um, has its own energy. You know, I think a book will tell you, all right, you're done. You know, you've squeezed so much out of this that I think what you're trying to say has been said and you can't say it any different. Um, and then even though one book idea uh, looks a certain way when it, in its, you know, in, in its infancy, it might shift. I've had books that had a certain title that I had to change the title because I'm like, eh, that's not really what I want it to be anymore. Like, um, I have a book called He Was Taught to Be This Way. And before it was called that, it was called Book of Him because I wanted to create a response to a book that I called Book of Her, Book of She. And it was like 2015-ish. And so I was like, all right, I want a book. I'm going to write a book called Book of Him. And then uh, I said, all right, what am I trying to get at here? What's, what's, what's at the heart of this? And it transformed. And that took like five or so years even to write that book. Um, which is really important because it was a book that I wish I had growing up as it relates to like, what does it mean to be a man? You know, what is masculinity? Uh, what are all these things that, you know, we, we say is really important around gender and gender norms and gender expression and, you know, all of the relationships, all of that. And so um, I had to have a heart to heart with things that, you know, whether I experienced it firsthand or I observed um, and use that as a, Hey, this may not be true for you, but respond to it, whatever feels good for you. And so that's just an example of how books just take forms in different uh, ways that, you know, only the writer knows and it's okay. That's the beauty of being self-published in my opinion is I can say it's ready or nah, let's just kind of put on the back burner. Um, it's, it's, this is for later. Like I have books now that I'm going to hold off on maybe a couple of years because they're just not ready. Maybe the world isn't ready or maybe selfishly I'm not ready to let them go yet. Very cool. Okay. You've mentioned like several times, oh, I've always been a writer. I always knew I was going to write. I was always writing. But then when it sounded like, you know, when you're like, want to be a writer, like period, end of sentence. Did, was that something that you always knew when you wanted, but you didn't like allow yourself to like fully see and know, you know, or you know, like in that getting to the like, oh, when you're finally last year, like realizing, oh, okay, I'm doing all this and it's great, but I need to choose something. Like, do you think that, yeah, like you've always wanted to be a writer, you've known you're a writer, but you weren't allowing yourself to fully see that? That's just what I make up. Yeah. No, I think that's that comes with like societal pressures of what can and can't happen. You know, think about it as a kid when you're like, I want to be an NFL player or NBA player, or I want to be a, a jazz musician, or I want to, you know, fill in the blank, whatever that is. There's always some person or some pressure that says, mm, but no, really, like, you know, that's not, you know, you're not gonna make a lot of money doing that. 
you know, you know, be a lawyer or a doctor or, or something that will make a lot of money so you can, you know, you know, take care of yourself and your family. Being a writer, for example, may not pay the bills, um, but you can, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a good side thing, but maybe not the full thing. And so even though, um, you know, I think that's the, the same kind of testimony around the arts. It's like, mm, this is, this is not like, this is like a, not a real thing that some people might say, but actually it's the, the whole thing. I think it's the heart thing to do where imagine if someone says, I want to be a writer or I want to be a ballerina or I want to be a saxophone player or I want to be, you know, a carpenter, someone around them saying, all right, let's make it happen. Let's make it happen without kind of diminishing them. Um, again, like I said before, in my head, even though there was no direct, you can't do this, it was always, uh, you know, you got to make a lot of money. That's not going to make a lot of money. Um, you, you can still write, but you should also do this other thing, kind of like a plan, plan A, and then writing could be plan B, C, D, somewhere along the line there. Um, so when it was, uh, you know, I think when it was, um, showing that it was possible. Cause even when I first started self-publishing, uh, I was like, Oh yeah, this is not going to work <laughs> at all. Like no one is buying a book. No one's buying a book. Um, well you need, I'm guessing you probably didn't have like as much social media and stuff like, Oh yeah. Back then I think you need uh, an audience. there was like a like hundred people. You have to yeah. tell people and you have yeah. to tell them over and over again that you have these things. And like, <laughs> yeah, I wasn't, you know, for many years I wasn't even even my brain wasn't even thinking about like building a network, you know, all those yeah. different things I've picked up along the way, but from adolescence to now, um, I believe wholeheartedly that I knew deep down I wanted to do this, but I didn't know if it was possible. And I didn't even know if I had it within me, um, to, to make it possible. There was this fear of, poof, I don't know if I'll be successful or I don't know if it's going to work. Um, and that, that's that Ray Owens quote, you know, how am I going to make this work? how can I afford not to? And so I think the how can I afford not to part came um, and it went from like this dim fire to like this raging, roaring, deep, like, yo, you you got to do something right now because your soul, I've always, I wrote this down before, like, you know, I write because my soul is on fire. Like I always, it's just like, there's something burning within me. Like you need to get this out in whatever way you can. And even though back then, you know, air quotes back then, I didn't see myself doing this. I felt myself doing this, if that makes sense. And, you know, uh, this year, 2020, my mantra, my theme is to trust yourself. And I really wish that years ago, say this is, you know, 2012 or even before that, that I had this mantra that kind of in the background saying, trust yourself, trust yourself. Like, this is what you want to do. Just do it. Just do it. Just do it. Um, but there could be people who are in your camp and your support crew and your, uh, your tribe saying, you got this, you can do it, but you have to believe it. Uh, and for so long, I was too shy to tell people I wrote a book you know, someone would come up to me and like, Hey, uh, what do you do? I'm like, you know, I, I work for this place and I rarely introduce myself as a writer or a poet or an author. It was kind of like something that I kept to myself or a small group of people because I was too shy to maybe fearful of having to explain myself um, or even have to perform at that level, you know? Uh, and so it took me many books and many trials and many tribulations to, to then step into that power and say, I'm a writer, full stop. 
literally. I mean, in my, I think one of my bios, it literally says writer, <laughs> full stop, um, because there's that's an affirmation. It's like, I don't need to tell you who I work for, or what do I do, how many books. It's just, I'm a writer. And um, it's transformative. It's, it's freeing. And I get to define what kind of writer I am or what kind of writer I want to be without saying, uh, I do this, 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 this. And then, yeah, I have a couple of books. You know, I can say, hey, hey, you should check my books out. You can find them on the website. Um, I don't I don't think I had that within me as it rains in Concord right now. I'm looking out the window. Um, you know, I don't think I had that fortitude or that courage to say I'm a writer and here are my books. Um, so if you're listening to this, you are a writer. If you want to be a writer because you are a writer, um, you know, just trust yourself. Yes. Love that. And I was thinking, yeah, I asked for like people's titles behind their name, you know, and you gave me it. And the first time you earlier in the interview, when you said I'm a writer period, I was like, oh, maybe I'm going to take like, thanks for those titles. Can I just put Adrian and Michael Green writer for yours? <laughs> There's some pieces too. It's like writer full stop. It's like, wait, what does writer, that mean? Full stop. Yeah, maybe I'll put that writer full stop. <laughs> But no, I, I mean, like I said, I had a feeling because I've noticed even, you know, something like somewhat, I'm going to say silly, but it's not. Like I've noticed that I would not even allow myself to want something because basically I was already believing it wouldn't be possible for me. So I wouldn't even allow myself to say I wanted it. And this is about, I live outside of LA. I've lived all around Southern California, different areas. I moved out of LA when I got into a relationship and then got pregnant and we moved somewhere else. And so I, for years, talk myself out. People be like, oh, don't you want to move to LA? No, LA would just drive me crazy, the traffic, the this. But the reality I've re realized is that I never allowed myself to even want to move back to LA because I have been living by the belief is I'm not someone who can afford to live in LA with kids. Like single, I was totally fine. But so I haven't even been allowing myself to consider that as a possibility of something I would want because my brain just automatically goes into, Trisha, you will not be able to afford to live in LA with kids. And I'm like, you know what? I think I do want to live in LA. And so now I am in the pro like right now, like, yeah, my bank, like it's, is telling that story or whatever, but I'm just telling myself and said, Trisha, you are someone who can afford to live in LA with kids. And like, that makes you look at it differently. Where is I living? Whatever. But like that I for years wouldn't even allow myself to consider it as a possibility because I was just living by that underlying belief of I will never be able to afford to. So I can't allow myself to want it. Yeah. The like, power of words, the power of things that we tell ourselves, the power of what we allow, uh, what people say to stick to us. Even if we say, no, that's not true. It sticks to us. You know, we're human. We have feelings. Um, we're sensitive to our, our surrounding area and our environment. And so when you hear it's too expensive to live here, you can't do it, it's not possible. Then you're like, oh yeah. It's like, you know, it's automatically when you drive, have you, have you ever driven some time and uh, you're, you get in the car and then at some point you're like, whoa, how did I even get here? Yes. Like I got to my destination, but like, like whoa, because we're on autopilot. And so the moment you say, whoa, 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 hold on, actually, I want to make it happen. You're, you know, you're pushing back against that narrative, that recording that says, no, not possible. You know, that, that squirrel brain. No, no, I want to be comfortable. I want to be comfortable. And to be uncomfortable means like there's going to be stress and I don't want to be stressed. Right. But when you say, actually, some stress is good stress, and this is what I want to have happen, and here are the things I want to make it happen, and I'm willing to 
have a bank account that reflects that, um, then you can make it happen. I think anything is anything is possible. I have a quote that goes, you know, magic happens when you do what you say you're going to do. That's like basic law of attraction. It's going to happen if you, one, say you want to do it and you say you want to have it happen, but then do something about it so that it can happen. You just can't say, I want to live in LA or I want to live in the Bay Area or I want to live in Florida or I want to live wherever or I want this kind of relationship. You have to put in the work uh, and the work looks different for different people. Um, but it all starts with that positive mentality. Um, I wholeheartedly believe it and I've experienced it. And sometimes it takes a long time. You know, are you willing to wait? What are you doing in the waiting? Are you literally just waiting, like twiddling your thumbs? Like, all right, I'm just going to wait for it to rain like it is doing right now in the East Bay. Come on. Great. It's raining. But is there a seed there? Like literally, are you, did you put the seed down um, and have you been watering it yourself? And so that makes it all, makes all the difference. And so I'm proud of you for making it happen. That's great. Yeah. I mean, that's what it's sort of just like, it, it starts with allowing yourself to even ask yourself, what do I want? Like, wait, do I want to be, wait, I want to write or I want this. Like so often we don't even allow ourselves to see outside of our current circumstances. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sometimes we feel like we can't allow ourselves or we don't have the privilege to allow ourselves or we don't have the space to do it or the time to do it or whatever the language that you want to throw in there. But in reality, even if you just took five minutes to slow down and just ask the question, what do I want? What needs to have, what needs to happen? What, like really, what do I need to have happen? What do I want? Then yeah. That's where it starts. And then I think you go from five minutes to 10 minutes to however long. Um, but there's always time. There's always permission. But you have to you know, tell yourself that you can. Yes. Okay. I'm going to get to the questions I ask everybody. The first is I'm bringing up this image of these are phrases that go on keychains in my product line. And I ask everyone to not necessarily pick which one they like the most, but which one they feel they want as a reminder in their life right now and why. Like something that you would want to see and be like, oh, yeah, right. For whatever reason, I don't know. The, I trust the timing of my life is standing out to me. Of all the ones, they're all really important. But the, I trust the timing of my life, probably because of the mantra of, of trusting myself, trusting yourself. Right. But. Um, the combination of timing in there is pulling at me um, because, you know, a lot of, a lot of stuff happens, a lot of life happens and it's happening. And, you know, even though it may not be going the way you want it to, or you expected it to, and, you know, you put your calendar like, all right, March 10th, I'm talking to Trisha, the joyologist about this cool opportunity to just be in space together. But then in between the, when we talked about it to now, a lot of stuff happens that you can't future, you can't predict. Um, and so I think it's all part of the plan. And so, you know, trusting the timing of my life, I believe is where I am. This is the chapter I'm in. Yeah, I mean, you did. You made a pretty big leap three months ago. So trusting the timing of all of us, trusting the timing of everything that's happened in your life to be to I am a writer full stop. <laughs> What is something that you do to raise your joy levels, like a go-to? Mm. To remind myself that uh, I can be in joy, that 
I can, because now I work for myself full time, you know, it could be like, go, go, go. I got to write this, got to post this, got to share this, got to make this happen. It's really feel like I'm working more than I've worked in my entire <laughs> life um, because there's pressure to make sure I make this work. Um, but it's a reminder to say, all right, do what brings you joy. And for me, joy comes in different capacities. One is um, working on puzzles. And so just sitting down and, you know, being, uh, I get it from my grandma. We used to put puzzles together. And so I've done a couple thousand piece puzzles and that brings me joy um, to just being with my family, being with my son. But the most important reminder of all is that um, I get to have this joy. It's like I get to, not a like I should, no, it's like I get to. And so when I'm feeling low or stressed or anxious, I kind of fall back on, all right, what can you do right now that'll bring you joy, that'll kind of get your mind and your heart off of the stressor or stressors of life? And that typically is, you know, going on a walk, being near water, um, laughing with my son, watching the endless uh, scrolling of shows with my wife. Um, walking my dog, you know, like these small things that I think you can take for granted, but, you know, it reminds you to go back to your breath uh, and laugh and all the other stuff. It's important, but not as important as kind of being present with what brings you joy. Yes, I agree. That's why I ask everybody. It's a lot of times the small stuff, like we have access to joy, but we got to remind ourselves to that. <laughs> Um, okay, ask everybody to apply this phrase to their own life. What is easiest for you is not always what is best for you. So it could be like a habit, a way of being, something you've noticed, a pattern. What is easiest for me is blank. What is best for me is blank. What is easiest for me is to do nothing. But what's best for me is to do something. I was surprised by that. I thought from your what you were just saying, that it sounded like you were an overworker. <laughs> I thought you were going to be even leaning on the other one. Like what's easiest for me is to keep doing. Exactly. I mean, yeah, what's easy for me is to call up in my office and do all the work. But what's best for me is to, to get out and um, enjoy life. But I'm, you know, it's, it was more of like a, how can I flip that? Um, it's a both and. Yeah, I get that. <laughs> Maybe one day it could be leaning more to the other. Um, Okay, making sure. <laughs> the last question is, the name of the podcast is Claim It because I feel so often what we do in life is like we're chasing these feelings. Once I do this, have this relationship, job, income, money, then I'll feel like I'm enough, successful, fulfilled. And I feel like you just are just always going to chase it no matter whatever you have. And so it's a, uh, to us to claim those feelings for ourselves. You can claim your worth right now. You can claim your success right now. You can claim you're enough right now, no matter what you did today or how many books you've sold or whatever it is. <laughs> so what are you claiming for yourself right now? Hmm. That's a great question. I'm, I'm claiming, claiming love. I think for me, that's, always where I fall because at the end of the day, hopefully I'm spreading love or people are feeling the love. My family's feeling the love um, that I'm feeling the love and claiming that what's meant for me is going to happen. Actually it's, it was already written to, to happen. I just need to go out in and claim it. A lot of people who I talk to were like, I'm applying for this job and the interviews tomorrow and I'm like, yo, it's already yours. 
It literally is already yours. You just got to claim it. Literally reach out and it's yours because you're prepared for it. You're ready for it. So for me, you know, I'm claiming, I want to say victory, just claiming love, claiming um, the ability to just be and chart a path that feels right, that feels like I'm, I'm doing something that's meaningful, that's purposeful, that uh, is allowing people to, to see themselves as they are, as perfect as they are, not as an ideal them, but for me to say, hey, um, I get to do this and you get to do whatever it is that you want to do so long as you claim that for yourself. And so love, always love is what I'm claiming. I love that. And I know I said it was the last question, but I made, I thought of another question. <laughs> well, since I, you know, became introduced to you from social media, and I'm guessing a lot of people are in your amazing words on Instagram. One, since you now are like made, I am a writer, be your full-time thing or quote your full-time, your other job or whatever it is. Do you, have you noticed any more pressure on yourself for like what you write and put out there? And then also like, what is your overall intention with your online, with, with like your social media? Cause you write, I mean, it's just, I can't even describe your words are so, I can't, I honestly, I have no words. It's hard for me to describe what your words do. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, thank you for that question. And uh, for that comment, you know, writing has always been there and I've always felt this pressure to, to create and to produce and to share. And, you know, the, the, the world of social media, it's like, you like it or you don't. Um, but in my head, it's kind of like, and this is me speaking um, kind of like, how a rapper would or an, an, an artist who um, believes in themselves. Like Lil Wayne, Lil Wayne says, I'm the, the greatest rapper alive. Jay-Z, I'm the greatest rapper alive. I wholeheartedly believe I'm the greatest writer alive. And that's not ego, but that's um, recognizing that I think if I don't think I'm the best, then I can't aspire to be the best. I can't aspire to write better than I've written before. And so I'm in competition with myself. And so when I see other types of writing being hyper successful, like, I mean, like uber successful, um, the critical person to me is like, man, I'm, I'm a better writer though, but that's not um, selfish and wanting what they have. It's just like, I'm, I want to create something that much more better because if I'm not the greatest rapper alive, cause I'm not, I can't rap at all. Um, but if I'm the greatest writer, alive. I think that's affirmation for what I'm trying to do, not knocking anyone else at all. I think everyone should feel that they're the greatest writer alive, you know, um, because we all define great differently. And great to me means just like my stepmom back in the day in the living room, did I do my best? And I think for me, great is, did I do my best? And so because the pressure right now is to, you know, pay some of the bills that's pressure um i don't let it stop me from writing what's real for me when people always say you can you give me some advice i'm trying to write this book and this and that uh i always say write what's real literally don't try even on my laptop right now i have two post-it notes one says write what's meaningful and the other one says remember w for you 
which means right for you. Those are my reminders. And so I can't allow the pressures of what is um, liked, what is like, oh, if I use this word, it'll get tens of thousands of likes. <laughs> you know, that's not important to me. What's important is, did I put something out there that was useful? Can you literally practically take something and whether you use it for yourself or for someone else, can you say that what I wrote was helpful? If not, that's okay. But if you can, that's even better. Um, and so that's kind of how I write. And so one, I believe I'm the greatest rapper. Uh, see, there you go. <laughs> in, my, in my head, the narrative is like greater rapper alive, but I, I take that mentality of greatest writer alive. Um, but am what I'm writing, is it meaningful? Is it purposeful? Is it useful? Um, and if I can say yes, and that's all that matters, that to me is great and that's enough. Uh, and so I think that transcends any industry, any occupation, any desire, any thought or idea. Um, because if you can use that, and again, that's just my baseline. Other people could say something meaningful is this. Success looks like this. Um, um, you should see me when I write something no one's around me, but I'm like, ooh, that was so good. I, yes, I could, you know, it can take me maybe an hour or so to find a hook or something to tie it together. And then when I do, I'm just doing my little dance. Like, oh yeah, uh, that's dope. But then no one will understand it. You know, I tell my wife, like, read this. She goes, that's good. I'm like, just good. Oh, that's just, uh. And so um, I believe wholeheartedly that, you know, I think we all have those moments where we want to, scream to the moon, like this thing, you know, it's kind of this, the, the epiphany, you know, when I was teaching in the classroom and there was a student, her name was Tatiana or even Tadasia, they would, um, you know, think there was a concept that was so hard. I can't do it. This is difficult. You know, uh, I'm not smart enough. But then when you practice, you get better at it and then you do it and it comes so easy. And then you're like, you're, you're like, a, it's like a light switch goes off, you know? Um, and you're like, oh, that's easy. But then there's like this shine about you. There's this glow about you. Um, I think that happens for me a lot when I find that like, man, but I don't, I don't need other people's validation for that. I mean, it'd be great. I would love for someone to see it too. But then that's what mm -hmm. fills me. It's like, hey, I got, I think I wrote something beautiful. And if you don't think it's beautiful, cool. But I think it was beautiful. Uh, and so I think that's what I take with me for the next maybe five or 10 or 15 books, or maybe I only write one more book or no more books. I think I've, I've left something um, meaningful. Um, and I'll leave you with this piece. I always, uh, growing up, we would hear, you know, leave, uh, leave your space better than you found it. And, you know, that's why I created Lavaste. I went back in 2014, 2015. And uh, I was curious, like, if I were to leave this place right now, what do I want, what do I want to be known for? And for me, it's spreading love. And so Lavaste translates to mean uh, the lover in me honors the lover in you. And so all the books that I put out, hopefully people feel the love. Hopefully people, um, you know, can see themselves in the love. But I want to leave this place better than I found it. And so if it's with one book or no books, uh, one poem, no poems, um, I believe that I've, I've done enough. I think I'm, I'm proud of the works that I've created. Um, and even if you don't read them, I appreciate uh, the opportunity to, you know, produce and whoever catches it, they catch it. And if they don't, that's cool too. Awesome. Thank you so much for sharing with us and for putting out, putting your love out into the world so regularly. And um, 
Yay. I'm just so excited to see what else is going to come. <laughs> yeah, no, thank you so much, Shisha, for the opportunity. Um, you know, joy is something that many people may not see themselves in. And I think because you affirm that and you want people to claim that and the work that you do from the countless interviews to um, even the the building up of, of all the things that you do, I'm sure, because you're human, there might be times you're like, I don't know if what I'm putting out there, people are listening or if they're interested or if I'm doing what I need to be doing, but know that um, I see you and I appreciate you. Uh, and if anything that I can do, uh, let me know. But I, you know, I cherish even the moments that we got to spend together um, on this conversation. I can, I can feel the love and the joy. And this brought me a lot of joy. All right. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. If you haven't already, go ahead and follow him at Adrian Michael Green. I think I left off the green when I said it in the beginning. Um, check out his books. And um, of course, follow me at Your Dryologist. You can find full show notes at yourdryologist.com slash podcast. You can find all the episodes there. We love hearing from you. We love seeing you share the episodes. I especially love, you know, seeing what you're listening to and why, what's resonating. You can DM me anytime. I love connecting with you. Like I mentioned at the beginning, I would be honored if you hit subscribe and left a review. You can screenshot it and send it to me at podcast at yourdryologist.com. Those things are what help podcasts become more discoverable. And um, don't, don't we all want more people to be like, listening to other people's stories. And hopefully the point is that by listening to these other people's stories, it helps you own your story and own your life even more and get out of your own way every single freaking day. <laughs> All right. For the last thought of the episode, right now, can you think of is there something that you haven't even been allowing yourself to dream of, imagine, to want? You know how Adrian Michael said, writer, full stop. How like I shared about it somewhat silly, but it's a big deal where like I wasn't even allowing myself to think about the idea that I actually would like to live back in L.A. because I was just telling myself that wouldn't be possible. Like I would tell myself that before the thought even came up that I wanted to live there. That's like how amazing our minds work to stop us from hearing the things that we want. We don't even allow ourselves to hear what we want. Ugh. So is there something that you can feel inside of yourself that you haven't even allowed yourself to daydream about? Think about that. And um, of course, go check out my products at shop.yourdryologist.com. Get the app in the Apple app and Google Play Store. It's called Own Your Awesome. And I've just uploaded a bunch of new affirmations and thoughts there. All right.